the Edwin Smith Papyrus. Hippocrates. Aurelius Celsus. Galen. Archigenus. Claudius Galenus. Percival Park. Jean Godinot. Theodore Bavarian. Marie Curie. Ludwig Calvert. Janet Lane Clayton. Austin Hill. Richard Nixon. Harold Zurahoven. Chris Sweeney. Chris Hopkins. What do they all have in common? They all loved talking oncology. Hello, I'm Joseph Iskia. I'm a urologist and a clinician scientist in Melbourne. And today I'm talking oncology with Andrew Redfern. Welcome, Andy. Hello. Thanks, Joseph. Yes, I'm a medical oncologist and a clinician scientist in Perth over in Western Australia. I specialise in treatment and research both in breast and prostate cancer, including clinical trials and laboratory work. Okay, now at Talking Oncology, our goal is to help doctors develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. Now, every good company has a strong mission statement, and here at Talking Oncology, well, that was the best I could do. Now, let's get into what I think is a very interesting podcast on an issue that has not been explored before in great depth. What happens when the evidence for one cancer is better than for another cancer? Today, we're going to explore whether this may be the case for breast cancer versus prostate cancer. So Andy, you're an expert in both breast and prostate cancer, so I'm looking forward to discussing the similarities and differences in our understanding and the management of breast versus prostate cancer. Breast cancer was one of the first cancers to have a multidisciplinary meeting. I remember sitting in these MDT meetings over 15 years ago during my breast cancer rotation during my general surgical training. And there we would discuss treatment options based on biomarkers of the primary cancer. Then today, you go to a urology MDT where we gaze at the low-power microscopic appearance of the glandular architecture of the prostate tissue. Well, what is going on here? Now, don't get me wrong. Don Gleason rocked the 60, and his seminal paper in 1966 describing Gleason scoring has stood the test of time. Despite 54 years and millions of dollars, apart from some very minor adjustments, no one has been able to do it any better. So, is this down to differences in historical research efforts, differences in disease, or a combination of a whole host of factors? So Andy, like any good counselling session, before we discuss their differences, let's start with some of the things that make breast and prostate cancer similar or what they have in common. Thanks, Joseph. Yes, I think it's always good to start with the similarities when comparing two diseases. It's in this area, I think, we may find lessons learned in one cancer that can be easily applied to the second one. And this can give us some potentially low-lying fruit in terms of improving the management of that second cancer. I guess we should start at the beginning, the epidemiology and causation of these two diseases. Both are the commonest tumours in the respective sexes and increase in incidence with age with one in five men and one in eight Australian women contracting prostate and breast cancer respectively in their lifetime. Both are frequently driven by the sex steroid pathways, estrogen and androgen signaling. And relating to this, both may be divided into luminal A and luminal B, or hormonal control cancers, and basal subtypes, with prognostic and treatment sensitivity features in common between the two diseases. To a certain extent, we can also consider estrogen and testosterone systems as opposing forces in both these cancers. For estrogen-driven breast cancer, therapeutic interventions show some benefits in androgen usage, implicating androgen signaling in suppressing some breast tumours. Similarly, estrogens may be suppressive in prostate cancer and have been the standard of treatment in the past. Further to this, the lesser-known cousin of the estrogen receptor alpha, which is the one we're usually talking about, estrogen receptor beta, also has a potentially suppressive role on prostate tumorigenesis. Looking now beyond the hormonal mechanisms, 
The risk of both cancers may be driven by mutations in the BRCA2 and other genes that are involved in DNA repair systems. Finally, once the tumours are formed, we do observe that they have similar preferences in which tissues they spread to, with the bone and lymph node metastases being the commonest sites of spread in both diseases, particularly in the hormone-sensitive versions. This suggests that there could be some common biology leading to these proclivities or preferences of tissue. If we can work out what makes both of these cancers go to these tissues, we may be able to combat the spread of both diseases. Thanks, Andy. That's some real gold. So we have common sex steroid-driven cancers caused by similar germline mutations that preferentially spread to bones and lymph nodes. And importantly, the androgen and estrogen receptors are playing key roles in both cancers. So Andy, how are they similar when it comes to prevention and treatment? Well, I think firstly, again, considering the importance of the key sex steroid pathways in the formation of both these cancers, it's then unsurprising that both of these cancers may be prevented by targeting these sex steroid manufacturing processes with drugs such as 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, which block testosterone formation, and the aromatase inhibitors that block estrogen. And uh, both of these have been shown to significantly reduce the risk of getting these cancers. It is also well known that both may be therapeutically targeted by blocking sex steroid pathways. The strategies here between the two diseases also have many similarities, including pituitary suppression of gonadal hormonal production with LHRH targeting, direct inhibition of sex steroid synthesizing enzymes, such as the aromatase inhibitors or abiraterone in prostate cancer, and also directly blocking the hormone receptors with antagonists in the cancer cells, such as with tamoxifen or apalutamide. When these treatments fail, we can also see some common mechanisms between these two diseases taking place. Mutation of the respective steroid receptors can occur in a proportion of patients at progression in both diseases. About 20% of patients in breast cancer get an estrogen receptor mutation, and about 30% of prostate cancer patients get a testosterone receptor mutation, causing hormonal resistance. Looking beyond benefits, the side effects or toxicities can also be similar from endocrine treatment in the two groups, including flushes, loss of libido, reduced energy and osteoporosis. We have found that using similar techniques and remedies in the two patient groups, such as venlafaxine or gabapentin to combat hot flushes, uh, can be helpful in both men and women. Now looking beyond hormone-based treatments, the same chemotherapy groups, the taxanes and anthracyclines, with examples such as docetaxel, adromycin or mitoxantrone, are also the most active cytotoxic chemotherapies in both diseases, suggesting more similarities here. Finally, although immunotherapy has revolutionised treatments of many cancers, Unfortunately, both breast and prostate cancer are also united by their low responses to immunotherapy, especially for the endocrine-responsive cancers. This may be both because prostate and breast cancer, especially the hormone-driven tumours, have low tumour mutation burdens and also low lymphocyte or immune infiltrates, which are both important in immunotherapy action. That is great. Breast and prostate are similar in that we target the sex hormone pathways all the way up to the hypothalamus, and both are responsive to taxane and anthracycline chemotherapies. I think this is a really interesting point, that both of these cancers are not particularly responsive to the immunotherapies. That's a real shame when we charge forward with these amazing responses in other tumour types. Now Andy, it's all well and good looking at the similarities, but as any Hollywood producer will tell you, it's pointing out the differences that makes the most effective clickbait. Yes, quite right, Joseph. Although the points we've discussed so far suggest that diseases can be almost conceptually interchangeable in many respects, there are important differences right from early detection all the way through to treatment of advanced disease. Considering first screening, invasive breast cancer almost always needs treatment, whereas prostate cancer may be just observed in certain cases for many years. Likely, at least in part due to this, the value of screening is also different with reductions in cancer deaths shown unequivocally for breast cancer, 
But for prostate cancer, the value of screening is yet to be fully established, with some positive and some negative studies. Although we have discussed the frequent role of hormones, only 5% or so of untreated prostate cancers are androgen receptor negative, whereas 30% of breast cancers are estrogen receptor negative, and so anti-estrogens do not work. Again, despite the similarities in driver growth pathways, there are surprisingly few gene mutations in common in the mutational landscapes of these two tumours. This suggests that once we move beyond the basic hormone treatments, we may require quite different medications to treat the two diseases once they are hormone resistant. Exploring this further, in prostate cancers, the majority of episodes of resistance to androgen deprivation, that is the blocking of androgen receptor, involve ongoing activity of the androgen receptor pathway. Whereas in breast cancer, estrogen receptor independent progression may occur where unrelated growth pathways switch on and may need targeting and the estrogen pathway is no longer important. I would love to pick up on those last two points, Andy. The immuno-oncology agents are proving to be the biggest success story of the last decade in so many different tumour types, but so disappointing in breast and prostate. The low genetic mutational load is likely one of the key factors causing their ineffectiveness. Do you think this is because breast and prostate are so sex steroid driven that in fact they don't require the same high mutational load of other tumours? A good question, Joseph. I certainly think that is part of the reason. The changes in prostate cancer and breast cancer are generally simpler than many other solid tumours, with only low levels of mutation required to kickstart these powerful endocrine growth programs. In contrast, immunosensitive tumours such as melanoma, lung and bladder cancers have no such growth pathways active in the normal cells, and so their growth pathway aberrations only emerge as a result of a large number of mutations that can occur as a result of UV damage and tobacco toxins. Okay. They say competition is good for the soul, and I don't subscribe to this modern fallacy of everyone gets a medal. So let's dive deep initially into the ways that breast cancer is ahead of prostate cancer. Well, I guess with that, we can start with your observation earlier about the extensive use of biomarkers on primary breast cancer to determine subsequent targeted adjuvant and metastatic treatments. ERPR and HER2 status are routinely used at all stages to divine optimal care, and now testing for the emergence of PI3 kinase and estrogen receptor mutations later in the disease process are set to become standard to guide the use of newer drugs. Prostate cancer still relies on microscopic appearance of the structure of the glands, with no biomarker targets of any kind as yet identified to guide therapy better. In breast cancer, there is also a better understanding of the roles of surgery and adjuvant radiotherapy, with trials many decades out. We are still awaiting RAVES and RADICALS trials in prostate cancer to make relatively basic decisions in this regard. The role of sentinel lymph node biopsy in breast cancer is also relatively well established, whereas trials in prostate cancer are ongoing with diagnostic accuracy demonstrated, but impacts on survival yet to be established. Additionally, breast cancer is ahead in complex combinations of therapy, particularly in the adjuvant setting, although prostate cancer is catching up with the RTOG0521 in the adjuvant setting and with charted, stampede, latitude and enzymet in early metastatic disease, looking at combined endocrine and chemotherapy or earlier endocrine therapy. Genetic risk factor establishment and genetic counselling for families, for example the BRCA2 gene, is well advanced for breast cancer. Prostate cancer has been late to that party, although this is understandable as conferred lifetime risks of breast cancer are substantially higher than those of prostate cancer with these genes. Breast cancer leads the oncological field in terms of support services, from the depth of network of breast cancer nurses that enable the support for every patient diagnosed, to the breadth of other disciplines involved, including physiotherapy, psychology, geneticists and so on. Initiatives to provide more comprehensive and holistic support for prostate cancer patients are building, however, such as the True North Initiative, a collective approach to improving quality of life throughout the prostate cancer journey for a man. 
The development of remedies to overcome endocrine therapy side effects, such as flushes and osteoporosis, are farther ahead in breast cancer relative to prostate cancer, although some remedies have translated across to provide benefit to prostate cancer patients. Other toxicities also in breast cancer, such as arthralgia and sexual dysfunction, remain problematic, with few good answers as to how best to manage them. Breast cancer fundraising undoubtedly has the highest profile, broadest reach and most visible footprint of all fundraising networks relating to cancer. Although prostate cancer is lower profile, due to the high volume of diagnoses, with sufficient frequency in younger and influential men, support is reasonable with substantial recent boosts from the success of the Movember initiative, which has raised over half a billion dollars for projects impacting men's health, including many in prostate cancer. Investigation and targeting of resistance mechanisms to endocrine therapy, such as the CDK4-6 inhibitors, mTOR inhibitors, and PI3 kinase inhibitors, is well advanced in breast cancer, with many therapies in routine use in the clinic. No such additive therapies are close to approval for prostate cancer, however. But now, in keeping with my favourite episode of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, uh, hopefully without the dark side connotations, how is prostate cancer ahead of breast cancer? Well, Joseph, breast cancer certainly hasn't swept the board regarding firsts. Interestingly, prostate cancer studies have far better data on survival, the most fundamental measure of treatment success we have. We have survival outcomes and proven benefits, such as for docetaxel given at any stage, for docetaxel given earlier rather than later, for carbizotaxel added after docetaxel failure, and for cell T. In breast cancer trials, the designs have not been able to show survival benefits for some of the core metastatic treatments we use every day. For example, we still don't know whether using anthracyclines and taxanes in metastatic disease has any impact on survival at all. Prostate cancer also has better data on whether to treat in contrast to with what, with some trials in older individuals with lower risk disease demonstrating the equivalence of initial observation to radical treatment with less morbidity. Breast cancer is only now starting to look at de-escalation, with trials of observation in DCIS and trials of single fraction radiotherapy or radiotherapy emission only now ongoing. The scheduling and timing of endocrine manipulation is also better established in prostate cancer. The data available on background maintenance of androgen deprivation therapy, intermittent androgen suppression, and chemonohormotherapy, as studied in the Chartered and Stampede trials, all relatively lacking in the breast cancer research space. Finally, PSA is a substantially better circulating biomarker for relapse and progression than any available in breast cancer management, with PSA surveillance routine, but no equivalent available for breast cancer. Andy, that is fantastic, but let's go super high level here. Most high school students can make a list of the what, but let's draw on your PhD skills to get to the why. Andy, why is it that the sophistication of the management of prostate cancer appears to be 15 years behind that of breast cancer? Well, Joseph, I believe much of the answer there lies in the demographics of the two populations, as well as some practical differences. Firstly, women with breast cancer are young, fit, with less comorbidities, and so whether to treat is far less frequently relevant, and treatment options are far less frequently constrained by general ill health in the older population, seen with prostate cancer. This also makes results easier to interpret in breast cancer regarding treatment outcomes. The vast majority of women with breast cancer need treatment or their disease will kill them, whereas many men with prostate cancer who go on to active surveillance or even to androgen deprivation type therapies will never need further treatment and will not die of their disease. 
Women at a given age are also generally better advocates for their own health and have demanded more research. A more practical consideration also is that there is routinely abundant tissue available at initial diagnosis in the majority of breast cancers, as removing the tumour is standard. In contrast, many men only get biopsies or diagnosed on purely clinical and biochemical grounds without any tissue confirmation. This means that resources for translational research, such as subtyping and biomarker development, are far more scarce in prostate cancer. Andy, that is a fantastically insightful list of reasons for breast cancer streaking ahead. I've really enjoyed exploring these topics with you, and I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of this. It's a fascinating way to look at these two gender-defining cancers and explore what they can learn from each other. If you could have one wish, what lesson or study or answer would you like to see prostate cancer explore from what we know in breast cancer? I think certainly the answer to that takes us back again to the area of biomarkers, and strong translational studies to define how prostate cancers evolve through treatment. Hopefully the routine collection of tissues at diagnosis, on treatment and at progression and the application of evolving technologies such as single cell sequencing and genome editing screens that allow us to establish important genes in a disease will be the tie that floats all boats and we'll see prostate cancer close the gap with improving patient outcomes. Well, thanks Andy. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you along. We've been Talking Oncology with your hosts, Andrew Redfern and Joseph Iskier. Produced by Joseph Iskier and Cara Webb. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Podcasts or SoundCloud. Or visit our website at www.talkingoncology.com.au. Or follow us on Twitter at Talking Oncology. You can check out the show notes for a great list of all the references that Andy has mentioned today. And this podcast was proudly supported by Janssen. This Talking Oncology podcast was proudly brought to you by Janssen.